You're traveling through another dimension. It is a dimension as vast as our ignorance and as timeless as our arrogance. It is the middle ground between pseudoscience and superstition, between light and shadow, and lies between the pit of our fears for an apocalyptic future and our hopes and dreams for a pseudo-utopia. It is an area we call night rule. My name is Isaac. I'm extremely pleased to be joined again by Professor Marianne Cummings. She is a scientist, a physicist, as well as a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois. Hello, Marianne. Welcome back to Night Rule. Hey, hey, Isaac. You know, you know I just reminded me. I was watching ahead. episodes of The Twilight Zone yesterday. Nice. I'm always astounded how many episodes I have never watched of The Twilight Zone. Mm. You would have thought, you know, they were in the background my entire life on one of the, on the uh, in reruns and astounding. Well, they did incredibly huge seasons back then. Like, I think the first season has like something like 32 episodes or something fucking ridiculous. Like, yeah, it's just like they owned everybody. They had them locked up by the commissary out back. The actors were signed forever. The sets were free. So they just churned it out, you know? Yep. Old Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's been a while since we chatted. I, uh, I'm curious for your thoughts on a few different topics. First off, I, I got into a bit of a Twitter battle yesterday. And again, you know, I like to use Night Rule as a platform to resolve my various Twitter arguments with people. Um, and I kind of got into this heated argument. It started off with sports and we were talking about statistics and charts and whatnot. And, and these people saying, you know, here's this chart. It's my evidence. You provide some counter evidence or fuck you. And I basically had to tell these guys like, look, you know, there's things that affect statistics and charts and analyses there's there's things like assumptions there's things like cognitive biases and i people i was arguing with were much younger than me still in university and they honestly seem to like not just not be aware of things like the bias that could affect a statistical analysis you know and i actually i actually kind of took it to a funny place i said you know Back in the Vietnam era, you know, Robert McNamara was creating a bunch of pie graphs and charts and statistical analyses that said, okay, this is how we're making progress in the Vietnam War. But like, guess what? It didn't capture the full reality. There were assumptions that weren't, that yeah. weren't, weren't accurate. And, you know, you can look at the Maginot line, I think is another stellar historical example of like a false assumptions leading to a catastrophic failure of like a scientific endeavor or an engineering endeavor and also militarily in that case. Um, but I'm just really beginning to wonder, like, as a scientist, as someone that, you know, is is uh, fairly well engaged in kind of the online world, and you've probably interacted with the people of all different types and ages, do you feel like there's like a lack of, of just basic, like, scientific literacy when it comes to people understanding things like, hey, you know what, one chart might not be fucking yeah. word of God? Oh, I think there's always that. I think in the case of the left, there's just a more generally a lack of introspection you know, that would lead to you questioning assumptions about what you know. And, and I'll give you an example. Mm. Back in the day, um, I remember uh, when the uh, Anita Hill hearings were happening. And of course, I totally believed her right off the bat. And I knew exactly the situation she was in. I was in a similar situation. Uh, you have to deal with these guys who can, when you're in a, when you're in a specialized field, it is a very small pond and the kind of jobs you want are extremely scarce and you are depending on the letter or a phone call of somebody to, yeah, it's, it's really hard to like muddy the waters at the time. You don't, you know, you just can't do that. So I was very, very much in her corner. A few years later, when um, Paula Jones came out, 
I was very angry and upset with that. But then I had to, I had to stop myself. I said, okay, um, I want to be consistent. You know, why am I just disbelieving her because she's going against a Democratic president? Or am I disbelieving her for better reasons? And I had to go through it. I mean, I had to like take myself through these arguments, the way she came out with, uh, you know, with the accusation in front of a federal society meeting, I believe. And the fact that she uh, refused to any interviews with uh, Ms. Magazine or now or women's organizations who were not all that happy with Bill Clinton at the time. Mm. And, uh, and plus the evidence that, you know, she gave turned out to be wrong. But I think the bottom line was, uh, okay, you know, uh, harassment is real. I would congratulate my Republican friends who were so concerned, like, wow, like a few years ago, you weren't even sure about rape. Now you're, you know, very concerned about sexual harassment. What a political evolution. Right. Um, but, you know, this is, this is the kind of thing. And, and I get, and I've been angry ever since. And I've, I go through the same things. Is, are they credible? You know, is it my bias? Is it my bias that's uh, siding me with this woman? Or is, you know, is what she's saying genuinely true? And that's, you know, just an unending quest. And if you kind of hang your hat on partisanship, and it is easy. Oh, we elected Barack Obama. Oh, the system is correcting itself. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of us were kind of just reflexively trying to defend what were a lot of disingenuous and racist attacks on him, you know, without a doubt. But I think it basically prevented us from seeing what he was actually doing at the time. Mm. You know, so I think that getting back to here, I mean, you know, when I read articles, I tell people, let's forget about the science for a minute, just like who, what, where, when, you know, why and how. Mm -hmm. If you're reading an article with a very salacious headline and you're like, three, four, five, six paragraphs into it, and you're not clear on the what. <laughs> as a matter of fact, the what is getting fuzzier as you go along, then you kind of uh, have to question, you know, what this article is about. Mm. Um, that's why, for instance, uh, I read four or five or six major articles about uh, the, the whole Russia, you know, Russiagate, uh, sure. Russians, Russians and Trump, and I just, you know, I just shook my head. You guys can't even pin down the what. And when there was a what, it was usually at the bottom paragraph going, there's no direct evidence that Russia was involved in mm. whatever, mm. you know, hacking of the DNC emails mm. or this and that. And it's like, okay, uh, people are constructing a story. And I would have thought that after the uh, WMD fables, Mm. the fables I like that term that's yeah that's because a good one. everybody was telling me but there's so much information I'm going yes yeah, so mm. much information that's all sourced to the same place I mean totally. and then when he talked about uh, you know when they talked about stovepiping it was exactly where we learned the difference between evidence and assessments mm. you handpick people to you know do an do an analysis they don't have evidence so they have to go by what they call an assessment what is possible and then what in their opinion is probable and so when what was it the dni came out in early 2017 about russian influence in the election a lot of people who didn't weren't really commenting on it at the time hadn't followed it at the time even said it was like very very slim mm -hmm. you know and then when you read through it seven out of 13 pages seven pages are about rt america 
sure. that's Tom Hartman broadcasts on RT. You know? <laughs> you know, some of our best journalists at the time had an outlet on RT because they couldn't have an outlet anywhere else. That the outlet was supposed to be current TV, right? Mm. And uh, Al Gore sold that. So, you know, you just couldn't have people on the genuine left who were questioning the basics of our capitalist system, you know, our basic foreign policy, not, as opposed to, you know, questioning individuals like the, the Bush-Cheney regime, you know, that they were considered an aberration, right? Mm -hmm. They really weren't. They were just no. much more worried about what we were doing, um, and so on and so forth. So I think that just bringing it back, the left has to learn how to be honest and assess itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think Russiagate would have been kind of silly and kind of amusing, uh, especially the buff Bernie meme that everybody thought. And I used to warn people, don't look at that buff Bernie, rainbow buff Bernie meme. You don't know what side powers it has. <laughs> but it wasn't <laughs> funny because people were going with this and blotting out, you know, just filling the, the taking up the oxygen with all these breathless, like, you know, red scare type stories. Mm. And what happened was no systematic, you know, uh, discussion about why the Democratic lost to Donald Trump. Mm. Why mm. Donald Trump was even a remote possibility. Mm. You know, uh, yeah. it, it, nothing, they, they slammed down. And as I told people, I, I we kind of know when they pushed it forward because remember um, Amy Parnes and Jonathan, I can't remember his last name. They were the Amy Parnell, I think, but they were the, um, they were the political reporters that were embedded with the Hillary Clinton campaign. Mm. And they had already decided on the title of their book of the first, the campaign of the first woman president called Shattered. Because of the right. glass ceiling, they kept the title. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Had a certain di different connotation, but the title was still, you know, uh, appropriate. Mm. But you know, the night after the election, of course, everybody's wandering around shell shocked, and yeah. they're willing to talk. In a losing campaign, people start talking, and uh, they, uh, many of the aides told them that they just had a meeting, got out of a meeting with Bob, Robbie Mook, and John Podesta. And like, what are we going to do? How are we going to spin this? How do we yeah. explain this? And they decided that, well, we better start, you know, talking to our friends in media to start uh, talking up the Russia angle. Mm. Because if there was a big enough actor like Russia, nefarious actor, it, it would sort of absolve them. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, it's, it's a great brand to invoke, you know, the Russians. Oh, yeah. Well, it's easy because it's, um, you know, it. It, it is a bit I mean, because partially because Russia does do things like interfere in various elections and cause cause discord and whatnot. So like, as we who, do, who better as to we accuse as we as we've been doing, of course, for centuries, for yes. like 70 plus years. I mean, you know, yeah. the question is, um, but the thing is, even if they were doing this, the idea that a bunch of cartoons on Facebook, most of them running after the election, by the way, would be enough to like offset or any number of things like mm. Comey or thing. I, I think Bernie Sanders was on um, Face the Nation. I think he's one of the few people that could, you know, weren't still, you know, uh, hung over from. Sure. Can I just quickly say like, Bernie Sanders is like the only good guest that's ever on Face the Nation. That's the only Face the Nation appearance. They that were asking him about. and they were accusing him. Don't you bear some responsibility? Oh my God. Yeah, the whole nine yards. And he said, look, 
the question shouldn't be what moved the needle a percentage or two, anything. I mean, in, in an election, anything that close to the uh, that close to the election can move the needle a percentage or two. The weather, you know, uh, is the question is why wasn't she leading by ten or more points? Exactly. Why was that all so tight? And um, yeah, and you can blame the electoral college. Although I suspect, because I remember at the time reading that they were concerned that people were so compl complacent about the election and sure of her victory that they were facing the probability she may win the electoral. Of course, they knew she was going to win the electoral uh, votes. That was just a given. They're wrong. But uh, what happens if she lost the popular vote? They were talking about that. So they were telling people two weeks before to get people out to vote. Now, if she had won that way, which was a complete possibility. Sure. Uh, people wouldn't be talking so much about, uh, you know, how horrible and racist the, the electoral college is. Instead, they'd be going, wow, you know, the wisdom of the founding fathers 240 years out to anticipate a Donald Trump, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's getting more and more frustrating because I feel as though, and especially with politics as well, like we're, like, are we living in, in the age, the high age of pseudoscience? Like, you know, because when people don't have the practice or the ability or the inclination to do things like say okay well, what questions are we actually asking is there a bigger question you should be asking are there assumptions we have in our analysis because so many people now and there's very much this culture uh, online especially where you know and particularly amongst um men where they'll they'll say things like you know do your research read you know go, go out there do your research and come to your own conclusion as a rational human being you know make an informed choice now the thing is if the things you're going to read are fucking daily stormer articles or you know uh, the Washington Times or the New York Post, you, you know it, <laughs> that's going to matter. That's going to make a difference. It's not as though you can just go and get read ten different articles and then you found you found the truth. If you're not going in with any any kind of critical thinking or like you say, an ability to look at your own positionality and things and and maybe think about well, what do I actually want to hear? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, like I'm actually beginning to wonder if you know. We talk about uh, science uh, education being underfunded and undervalued, but I kind of want to see a fucking class on school curriculums called pseudoscience and how to yeah. identify it, you know? Yeah. Because really, that's those are skills that kids are just not going into the world with now. That I think you're right about this. And, you know, I'll give an example early on. Now, uh, last year, I watched, I, I listened to Joe Rogan, I think, for the reason is that he and Terry Gross of NPR are probably the best interviewers I have seen in that they get people to talk. I mean, they really draw people out. And I'm yeah. astounded at Joe Rogan, the quality of guests he has and the questioning that can draw them out. So he had, was it uh, Brent Weinstein? Um, sure. Okay, so he's one of the people that has been dubbed part of the dark web. Intellectual um, dark web, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, I don't agree with him on a lot of things. I mean, mm -hmm. on most things, perhaps. But I remember listening to him, and he was talking about COVID, among other things. They had a three-hour long interview, but the uh, last hour was COVID. And he said, well, when I found out that there was a level four bio lab, you know, in that region, mm -hmm. oh, that said, you know, that, that uh, sent red flags. And then he talked about, uh, oh, you know, there's the fur and cleavage site, <laughs> a very technical sure, that's, yeah. something, that's, that's something uh, that is very much uh, 
uh, like related of, to like gain of function yeah, research, right? Genetic, well, genetic modification, yeah. uh, gene insertion, and so on and so forth. I am not an immunologist, but you know, I'm listening to this and I'm going, well, that's reasonable. I mean, that's a reasonable set of things to have. Mm -hmm. Later on, I listened to um, uh, his interview with Michael Osterholm of the uh, Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy up at University of Minnesota. And he's, mm -hmm. he was the guy that predicted that something like this recent COVID was not only possible, but it was inevitable, mm. you know, and after he had, and he talked to, uh, and he had talked to Joe Rogan. If you saw the movie uh, Contagion, which came out in 2011, mm. they had several people from his institute that were uh, technical consultants. And he was the main reviewer before they released the movie. And so they have some direct quotes in the movie from his, uh, you know, from, from one of his white papers. And after, of course, 911, everybody's worried about bioterror. He, uh, but then the SARS, the first SARS hit. And that was scary. And I talked to people at the time who had told me that when I was, I guess a few years later, I was asking about the H1N1 and should I be concerned? And they said, no, it's pretty weak. But that SARS virus a few years ago, we really dodged a bullet. Yeah, I think it had like about a 10% fatality rate or something like that, yeah. right? Like just no, way higher than COVID. But, but it wasn't as, it wasn't as, as contagious, however, yeah. The Chinese did the right thing. The government at the time did the absolute right thing. They listened to their doctors in the field. They they just clamped down hard on big vast regions, and uh, and it never got a chance to go through like two hundred million bodies evolving all the way, becoming mm -hmm. more and more adept, <laughs> like the current SARS is. Uh, and so you know. So I'm listening to him and he said that he, it, he changed his mind about the bioterror aspect when he uh, visited a wet market for the first time. Mm. And we know a lot of these viruses jump from the wild to humans or from the wild to pigs, geese, whatever, and humans. As a quote in the movie says, I'm not worried about terrorists, you know, or, or rogue nations weaponizing this. The geese have already weaponized this mm. better than we possibly could. And he said, we saw that. And all those chance encounters over the decades, suddenly you've just got millions of these animals and people together. So even though any it very small, very, very small possibilities of any mutation, you know, allowing a virus to make the jump between species, you multiply that small probability by millions. And so that anyway, that was his concern. Mm. And I would have now I'm I'm saying all this. Not to even take a side, I, I do have a side, but that's not the point. The point is, those are two very valid viewpoints. And I'm sure if you got Brent Weinstein and Michael Ulsterholm in a discussion, it would be very civil. You would learn a lot. But last year, we weren't allowed to consider the first one as a possibility. I mean, that was considered, you know- You mean in terms of the, the lab leak hypothesis? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I-, I was probably earlier than a lot. I, I I looked at some of the, the information I was hearing. Again, I'm not a scientist, but it seemed to me like pretty crazy how dismissive people were of it. And and probably yeah. people needed to look at things like their own um, institutional position, because right. really, like the lab leak theory, if proved, is what could be like a a death knell for like all kinds of uh, virologists and their careers and their funding, well, right? Like, and, and you know, Michael Ulsterholm, very, I think it's in his book. Uh, his book came out in 2017. That's what I read. It was called Deadliest Enemies. And he talked about, you know, 
like the, usually you see these these flu viruses come and uh, and and rage around the planet and then they leave because they eventually just die out. So you don't see any uh, you don't see the reemergence of these things. And then there was a reemergence of one in the 1970s. You know what the hell went on? This is early in his career, and they find out that the Soviet scientists had actually asked us for samples of the H1N1 virus plus samples of the H1, H2N3 viruses because the Soviets were testing like a uh, multivariant type vaccine against flu. Mm. And we gave it to them. And they thought they had an isolated group of people, volunteers. Well, it turned out that, the, that one of them, I think they ate the h 3N2, or I might be getting the numbers wrong, but the point was, is that one got out. <laughs> and it's like, and so that caused uh, Olsterholm's interest in lab security, like all the way back in the 70s, getting a standard to all of our labs, getting an international standard. So he was very, very much biased toward, you know, any possibility of a lab leak or in anything like this. And of course, he comes down. He comes down on the side of it's not impossible, and no credible immunologist said that it was a pot, that it was impossible that it was a lab leak. But the overwhelming evidence right now is that hey, you know, it's since we know these coronaviruses do evolve, we know that they recombine, unlike the flu, and we know that fur and cleavage sites are actually common on the spike protein, mm. so on and so forth. Again, I don't want to give a biological lecture. What I'm saying is that when, uh, when I had to start reading some real peer-reviewed papers because I was moder help moderating a panel, they wanted a non-immunologist uh, scientist on board last year, so I volunteered. Boy, the complexity, just the sheer complexity of this field was enough to really give me some pause. And then I realized that, oh, I, I, you know, you start when you start to understand things and realize I take, I read a three page paper. It takes me half a week to get through it, to understand these things. Um, so the complexity of this really, there is a reason why people get PhDs in immunology. You know, you can't just read a couple of review hour articles in Scientific American and think you're an expert. By the way, you know, I had these the same problem with, um, oh, you know, there was this these theories around Building Seven of the World Trade Center, and sure. I, I was a I was an amateur too at the time when I saw these buildings go down. And damn, that looks like a controlled up demolition. Now oh. I happened to be working with material scientists and, and cryophysicists because of the detector I was developing. Mm -hmm. And they were just explaining to me, oh no, that's exactly how these buildings would come down. You know, these things like the, uh, like the, the World Trade Center, what they were called mostly air structures with a steel core and aluminum kind of, you know, uh, panels and, and girders uh, off, off from the, uh, shooting off from this core because they were designing for these buildings to be able to withstand a, category four hurricane you know so all these new alloys had tensile strengths means you can bending you can bend it and it can snap back very close mm -hmm. to their ultimate strengths mm -hmm. and meant that their you know melting points were a bit lower but it also meant that you know the uh the heat transfer and the force transfer was just automatically transferred to the whole structure so they could mm -hmm. absorb these so they could absorb a dc10 which is mm -hmm. what they were worried about Mm. coming from uh they were worried about a 
a chance crash from city airport. Mm. But anyway, my point, again, don't, don't listen to me as expert advice on material science. But the point was, again, there's a reason why people get advanced degrees in structural engineering. Um, you know, because it takes a long time to understand this. You can't read an article or two and expect that you understand all the complexities that go into these buildings. Mm. So, you know, um, it was, it, it, and, you know, I, I was uh, following the uh, debate in popular, it was uh, popular mechanics, and they did have what they call the finite element analysis. And I happened to know that particular program because I was working with that particular program with our own smaller structures that needed to give, uh, but it was kind of containing liquid hydrogen, which is an explosive, you know, substance. So, you know, we had to really be sure of the strength of all these things. And my, my point is, is that, yeah, you have to, at a certain point, you have to have a trust in these scientific and engineering institutions mm. and when you lose people lose faith in these institutions we're in trouble because Absolutely. you know yeah. you're not going to uh you're not going to come up with a vaccine you know because yeah. you have a bunch of people singing folk tunes you know mm. about the dangers of <laughs> various types of r d yeah know, so I don't know, maybe in Florida they figured it out. They seem to have it all figured out down in Florida these days. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting because there's also like, uh, people are aware of the fact that uh, of the power of science and kind of the social impact and, and import mm -hmm. of it. So what, what almost makes it so dangerous, what, what I find dangerous is people not who, who are non-scientists who are kind of cherry picking whatever kind of scientific like flavored data they want putting that out there as though it's gospel, even though, you know, putting anything out there as though it's gospel is totally anti-scientific. Um, and, and it's weird to me because it's, it's, I feel like people actually get more close-minded when they're engaging that activity. They're just, they want to be right. They do, yeah, exactly. They want to be right. It feels good to be right. Doesn't it? It feels good, good to root for your team and have them be right. You know, it's, um, it's hard to actually try and develop independent methods of inquiry. And, and this doesn't have anything to do with scientific training. Mm. It, this is, again, it goes back to just how do you read an article? Um, mm. I think part of, part of the benefit I received from going to the Catholic school I went to is just a mm. working class parochial school, but our teacher that I had for three grades was had a master's degree. I mean, she was a very smart literate person. And one day when I was in the sixth grade, she passed out, we had the old mimeograph machines and she passed out mimeograph copies of various articles. And our, and, you know, our in-class assignment was to read the articles and then answer these questions, who, what, where, when, how, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm. And I'm sitting there reading my article and scratching my head and reading the article. And she called on some people, but she could see my consternation. She says, Marianne, yeah, I haven't heard from you. You're usually piping up. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can do this. And, and she started laughing because she put that article in there as an example of a headline that was completely misleading, you know, mm. that really didn't have much to do with the ultimate content. And I'm sitting here like trying to be a good little student and get to the, I never forgot that. Mm. And um, that's not, 
you don't have to have uh, advanced degrees to be able to do that. You have to have just quietly, you know, sit and ask a few basic questions, but also set aside your biases. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think it's honestly something like every high school should be participating in. And I know we've got everyone studying critical race theory 100% of the time, supposedly in every high school across America. I'm joking, of course, but like, I remember I had a drama teacher in high school and we talked about, he had a, a, a segment of the class about propaganda techniques and things mm -hmm. like, you know, appeal to tradition, appeal to authority, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, you know, a half hour lecture on that kind of shit gives people enough to think about probably for the rest of their lives, you know, if they were listening. That's good. I mean, you know, I, I don't like talking about critical race theory because I really don't know exactly I mean, like, what yeah. it is. You know, it's really so, like the, what it actually is, is some kind of, you know, it's really only practiced or studied by a very small set of like legal scholars, I think, but like what it's become in people's imaginations, completely different yeah. question. Well, I, my first history book, I think I mentioned it before, but my first history book was a book called Before the Mayflower. It was a book lying around my house. Whoa, that was, and with, the title referred to the fact that in the continental United States, before the Mayflower landed, there were towns with stores and blacksmiths and everything else of escaped slaves from the Caribbean. Sure. In other words, it, it sort of gave you a much more multifaceted uh, view of, of American history. And it was that, I mean- Yeah, there was which a is book awesome. That, yeah, there was a book that came out that a friend of mine gave to me a few years back called Lies My History Teacher Taught. And to, to be fair, I mean, it was a very good book. And it was, but I said, if you read Before the Mayflower, you would get all of these trick questions right, you know, um, that, and, and now there has since been evidence that didn't really exist when I was a kid, but they have been able to, with um, uh, non-invasive techniques, see the outlines of major cities in, uh, in, in Georgia, for instance, that, you know, at some time in the last 1,000 years, there were major cities here in these continental United States. Mm. Um, and that would probably wiped it all out or remnants of it all out was the was smallpox that was here before the first European ever set foot because of escaped pigs from the Spanish. Oh, interesting. interesting. That was it. And, yeah, I and mean, like that, that yeah. those are all super fascinating verandas of history to actually walk down. Yeah. But the thing it's is, like, is that I think with what well, wasn't any just particular fact, the, the value for me reading that at such a young age was to give you the idea of how multifaceted and complicated the whole story was. Mm. So if you just teach the story, I mean, just teach history, you know, warts and all, and of course racism plays a big part, but it also class plays an enormous part mm -hmm. in the struggles. So if you just teach that, you'll have people way more fascinated with American history You'll, you'll have people asking more interesting questions. Uh, you, you'll, you're more, it's more impressive that we've gotten to this point than the sort of linear pageantry that's usually has, has been taught in history classes. And to be fair, so I, I took, after I read that book, I took my first history course, American history in the seventh grade. And, you know, in the 70s, they had, you know, I learned about Phyllis Wheatley and, and George Washington Carver and Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. I, I mean, I, 
I knew about that they were in our books already. So that we had, there was there had been some improvement. But I would during the discussions, I would bring up stuff, and then my teacher would always ask me, Where did you get this? You know, where did you read? And I told him about this book, which he ended up reading. And he wow. thought it was fascinating uh, before the Mayflower. But you know, again, I'm not, I'm not shocked I, to hear you were precocious even then. But the thing is, is that um, again, I, I'm thinking about this because we're thinking about journalism. You just brought up scientific, you know, it, it is, are people losing their scientific sensibility and history? And what I think all three of these have in common is that um, things, facts are not always as straightforward as they seem, certainly not in science. You know, we there were assumptions that we had for hundreds of years that only got displaced by countervailing evidence. But I think the same is true with history. It's like we have a story. We always have a story. You know, that we are storytellers. We, we, we need to have a narrative in our history. That's why some history is rather hard for me for me to read. And when I was a kid, even harder, because there were just all these facts you know, and it's just looking at a big warehouse full of stuff, you know, it's just like, yeah. you don't know what to do with all this it's stuff. It's like reading a chronicle almost, which is like unreadable. This yeah. year, this happened, this year, this happened. Happened this. By the way, history, when I took the history of the Soviet Union in, in college, I had the same problem. It was just like, mm. nothing was making sense. Mm. Nine years later, when I'm working on my, when I'm in exile in Tallahassee, Florida, Florida State, a friend of mine invites me to a lecture her mentor, who just gave a three-hour lecture on the Soviet Union without notes, was fascinating. Suddenly, all of this stuff made sense. But it took, um, you know, several years reading Noam Chomsky, among others, you know, about the just basically. Uh, so you, you find that a lot of history, uh, certainly science, but even journalism is dialogue. It's like, you know, this is what we have established or think we have established. Now, what is a countervailing argument? How do we test this? And that's how you get to a story. You know, people like testing the assumptions, people bringing in rather than filtering out some countervailing evidence. And, you know, and this is where, for instance, um, MSNBC failed on the whole Russiagate nonsense. There were a Absolutely. lot of people who had counter, I mean, serious people, like the people that they brought down that were it basically uh, knocking out the whole weapons of mass destruction narrative, mm -hmm. same people, but they wouldn't have them on because there was a nar narrative they wanted to have established. And to your point earlier, yeah, you know, uh, Fox News, the, the genius of Roger Ailes is that, you know, he realized that the product he was really selling wasn't news. It was people, being confirmed by somebody on the TV, their beliefs being confirmed mm. by somebody on the TV. Mm. Mm. And unfortunately, Rachel Maddow, who could have been one of our best journalists, she's certainly a smart girl, mm -hmm. um, you know, just basically fed into this. I mean, she had the Sean Hannity model and mm. she was getting close to Sean Hannity ratings as a result. Yeah. And that's been very damaging. For sure, for sure. Um, I also wanted to ask you, and this is something I was talking about with someone earlier in the week. I mean, we've got these kind of cartoonishly, you know, James Bond-esque visions of billionaires going into space on their expensive rockets. Some might argue, hey, this is good for science. It'll inspire kids. I would argue it's really just an advertisement for our, our huge need to address uh, income inequality. I, I assume you, you're more on the, on the latter rather than the former. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, what a stupendous waste. You know, this is the, the equivalent of, you know, fat cats in the 1920s, you know, rolling up wads of $100 bills and using them to light their cigars. Yeah, you know, yeah. This is basically, I'm so rich, I can just burn this money. Yeah, it's the, the Gilded Age with a booster rocket. It's pretty gross. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. And it's, you know, somebody said pigs in space. There <laughs> <laughs> are pigs in space. Um, and that's, you know, again, and that goes to more broadly. I, during the pandemic, of course, there are all these things that came out on Netflix and Amazon, you know, movies or uh, documentaries. And there was one documentary of a fairly young company one guy who's had a startup, he had a whole bunch of young scientists and immunologists, and they were trying to develop a vaccine, a multifaceted vaccine for flu. Mm. And they seem to be doing very interesting research. And the whole thing was, will Bill Gates give it, how will Bill Gates look at it? And I'm, will we, we get money from his foundation? And that was really struck me. You know, it's basically life-saving, possible life-saving in the case of COVID, you know, possibly planet-saving technology is all up to some billionaire Nimrod to decide that he might be interested in it any given Tuesday. I mean, yeah. it's just so precarious. It's such a joke. No, it's, it's, yeah. it's incredibly arbitrary. It's, it's, it's a personal kind of form of power in politics. Um, completely irrational, yeah. Um, I'm pretty disturbed by it, to be honest. But, uh, you know, we but never know. Maybe the whole thing are. will blow up. I mean, this is the end, but we've kind of played out our, you know, neoliberal capitalism and we're getting toward the end game here. And yeah. it's pretty hard to hide, even from people who, you know, have benefited from the system. Mm. For sure. Um, and actually just in, in uh, and at the risk of opening a huge can of worms with my final question here, um, you know, as someone fairly well acquainted with politics, you know, you follow it on the national level very closely, um, very engaged. You're obviously deeply involved on a local level. You're the Parks Commissioner for Aurora. You just had a campaign. You were going door to door mere weeks ago. Right. So you probably have a little bit of a pulse on people. I mean, this is this is probably a hard question to answer. But, you know, given the fact that we're seeing these stories coming out where even the Biden administration are realizing that Kamala Harris can't win if she's going to be on the ticket next time around. I mean, I know we're talking three years away now, so I'm, I'm kind of jumping the gun. Right. Um, who do you want to see run? Who do you and who do you think could win? Who do you think could actually unify um, people and, and actually have a winning platform? I mean, is it is it are we actually if, if I mean people talking about Trump running again, are we looking at another Bernie or bus type scenario? <laughs> like I don't well, even know. Well, you know, I don't know. Bernie won't. Mm. I don't I don't think Bernie will win at this, you know, whoever he's talking to. And I don't think it's Biden. It's, it's whatever is swarming around his administration that is actually making the decisions. Uh, Bernie feels he can actually do good from the inside. He even told Chris Hedges years ago that he doesn't want to be uh, like a Ralph Nader. And his greatest Ralph Nader was, you know, he got he's frozen not out. A force of influence now. You yeah. know, he just yeah. isn't. And Bernie is showing people what you could possibly do with the mess that's in Washington now. Mm. That's uh, and that's laudable. I think he's going to stay there. So I actually think Nina Turner. Mm. Uh, a year. I mean, she's like she will be serious about what Alexandria Ocasio Cortez said three years ago. He says you only need one year to do stuff. 
You mm. don't have to be there 10 years. If you mm. are serious about doing stuff rather than your career, mm. and I'm, I'm holding out yet some hope, look at me, naive, but that <laughs> Lena Turner is, because she is actually a leader. I mean, she mm. has faced down her party on numerous occasions, but she particularly, she was part of Ready for Hillary. And then when Bernie Sanders actually announced she changed and whatever. Right. And there were a lot of people, um, you know, who were telling you, you had a future in the party. Uh, by the way, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, not somebody whose politics I'm all on board with, but mm -hmm. the fact that she, you know, a, a good looking woman of color, check, 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 all those boxes. Oh man, all those, all those sex crazed Republicans would just fall in love with her instantly, you know? Oh, look, you know, they, by the way, I mean, they did. There is a weird fascination for people who are pro Tulsi that among the more right leaning people I know, and it isn't sexual, it's something else. I don't know. It's just, mm. uh, but it, but my point is, is that Tulsi did buck the party. She was the deputy chair of the DNC and she was, mm. you know, being fast tracked to a leadership position. Mm. And she said, no, I'm not going to go back, Hillary. You know, I'm going to, and, and, and I commended her for it at the time. I mean, so Nina Turner has been around the block. She knows what it's like to have the ire of the DNC come down on you and yet mm. hold your ground. And she, yeah. you know, I, mean, I don't know what the latest poll numbers are. I'm sure there's going to be some tightening near the end, but uh I think she's going to win by a substantial margin in her. And uh, and I'm sure old uh, Barack Obama is on the phone with people. <laughs> I'm sure of it. I don't think he wants oh, to God. publicly, you know, be, get himself involved in it. But I'm sure mm -hmm. behind the scenes, they do not want Nina Turner in there because she's a real leader. As Kyle Kalinske said, he um, one of the regrets he had uh, about vetting the Justice Democrats candidate, Democratic candidates, is that they didn't put leadership potential as one of the vetting and the vetting procedure. Mm. You know, well, how would you handle this situation? What would mm. you do? You know, mm. and I think the um, a part of what I'm feeling from the what we've determined the squad was the squad, but I mean the progressives is that man they. They're a little naive about the power of being on the inside and they are surrounding morning, noon and night with the narrative of the donors. Yeah. Whether people being nice to them or people being you know, kind of hostile to them. I think that's yeah. why Bernie Sanders never goes right back to being an independent you know, as, yeah. a, as a senator because he knows that he will be treated like he isn't in the club and he thinks that that's probably intuitively he knows that's a good goad to not you know, accept the premises of the club. And, you know- Yeah, well, I think people get, get bogged down by kind of the group think of the advisors and the handlers as well, right? Who are really well, wielding I, a lot of the power, you know? And I think that's why Bernie Sanders was always so damn clear. I mean, I read an article last year in the Atlantic about how, wow, Bernie Sanders seems to make very few gaffes. Mm. <laughs> and I says, yeah, because when you really know what you believe, and you do not care what any given focus group has to say about it. Mm -hmm. In fact, when Bernie Sanders did listen to some of those people is when he got a little weak in his messaging, you know? It's yeah. Like well, I mean, that'll create the anxiety, crazy. right? That'll give you, that's yeah. how that's how you become gaff prone. You're anxious, you don't feel like you don't know, you're gonna make a mistake, you know, oh, I'm gonna say and the wrong thing to offend the wrong group. It's like, 
and I feel like the advisors are just imbuing people with that anxiety as well. Well, they're the careerists, and that's you know one of the problems we've all you know punditry on the left as well as uh, people who are running campaigns. You're always up against the um, the advocates versus the careerists, and sometimes they're the same people. You know, it's just like hey. I've got to move on to my next job from here. And this candidate, you know, the kind of campaign he wants to run is not going to like check off those boxes in my resume kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, you, you're always against that. And if you're running a national campaign, that's, that's bound to occur. And, you know, I don't blame, I, I do not blame some of the uh, uh, Bernie Sanders top advisors at all. I mean, it's ultimately the candidate and, and Bernie Sanders decided not to end his, his friend Joe Biden's career in that last debate by going after him for his nonstop lying. And I know that Bernie Sanders can go after somebody when he wants to. That wasn't being flustered or a gap. He basically deliberately had hands off. And that was to me a great disservice to progressives in the country because now we've got this shell of a guy who at his yeah. peak you know, was just a compulsive liar you know, fast talking jackass, the best. Uh, and now we're stuck with him. Yeah, now, now he's kind of a slow talking jackass. Well, yeah, that kind of forgets words and things like that. He's kind of where Reagan was in his second term. And it's true. Know, he is a little bit more like Reagan than I think people probably realize. Yeah, also, like in terms of his, his base level politics. At the time, until like near the end of two, uh, 86, there was all this talk. I was, I, I was a graduate student, but there was all this talk, you know, the Ron Contra thing was flaming and, um, and they had played a speech of his from 1981. And that, that shocked me. That was really jarring to realize just how far Reagan had deteriorated. Because in 1981, he could still, you know, could tell a story, he could mm. tell a joke. He was very, mm. he was very good at it. You know, he was an excellent spokesperson. He didn't care about policy. He knew he didn't have to. He knew the effect he had yeah. on a crowd. Not just Republicans. Even my parents, who were hardcore Democrats, would kind of like, wow, that's, that's kind of funny what Reagan said. This guy is, is a psychopath who's going to get us all killed. I mean, yeah, he's, a, he's like a Hollywood I actor. I sympathize with particularly younger people being freaked out over Trump winning, but I had to tell them, you know, I got mentally ill over Reagan winning because I literally thought the planet had two more years mm. and that was it. I mean, there were people in his cabinet yeah. that were talking winnable nuclear war scenarios. That kind of whole spawned Hollywood's reaction. There were a whole bunch of movies that came out. Mm. Like, the day after uh, Matthew Broderick, the uh, what was that? End games or um, games. Matthew Broderick, uh, yeah, war game, I think. War, yeah, that or no, or something like that. Yeah, I know but the one. The you thing mean. is, is that there was a reaction to that in in popular culture, mm. and I think uh, Nancy Nancy took over things. Oh God! That, and she purged <laughs> some of the more toxic elements. You know, it's, it's a good point because people do kind of look at Trump and they're like, oh, my God. But it's like, imagine having to live through the Nixon era as well or the Reagan era. That we would have oh, been yeah. uh, in some ways even more frustrating. Well, it um, was a jarring thing for Reagan because, you know, in the late 70s, you know, I had the feeling that, well, because I, mean, I, as I said, I read lots of alternative type books, but I was still getting the feeling that the arc of history would, might be going in a mm. more positive direction 
But I was also, you know, at the back of my mind was going, is this an anomaly? I mean, I'm getting away literally with murder. I would have been burned at the stake 300 years ago. <laughs> and, you know, uh, and then, of course, Reagan gets elected. And I was like, holy crap, here comes history, history rushing back. Yeah. Um, but it, uh, and, you know, people don't remember this, but ABC had a special. I was in college at the time, it was 1981. It was the day before the inauguration. And ABC had a special where they had you know, they had Nancy and Ronnie were there and there's Donnie and Marie singing, go Ronnie, go, trying to get a whole room full of Republicans to clap in sequence, they failed. Then there was, you know, there was Jimmy Stewart and uh, he gets up and there's coming, you know, up from the center of the stage is a guy in a wheelchair that just was like, oh, Dr. Strangelove. No, it was Admiral Rickover. Right. <laughs> and, he, and he was so far out of it, gone at that point, he didn't even know where he was, but he started saluting and Jimmy Stewart turns him toward Ronald Reagan. It was, oh my God. David Lynch couldn't have choreographed a more bizarre thing. <laughs> the thing that just got me to leave was, uh, who was at Ben Vereen doing a blackface number waiting for the Robert E. Lee. And I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. I, you know, I get up, it's January. My landlady, who again, you know, was a socialist, but hey, we watched Reagan in the movies. Isn't this fun? I'm going, yeah. no. I said, if I were the Soviet Union, this would be a fantastic time to attack. <laughs> it's I, true. I think I'm going to go outside and like look at the skies for a while. You know, <laughs> it's. Uh, I think people yeah. were also primed because of kind of the, the perceived or real malaise of the, of the of the Carter years as well. Yeah. Like but, even even people in the middle were like, well, it's it's nice to have someone kind of putting a positive spin on things as as horrific well, as the Reagan administration was on like every level. I'm getting quite a um, an education from from uh, Harvey JK, our, our mutual friend. And mm -hmm. it's just like, cause I, at the time I was involved, you know, I was, I was kind of seeing things politically but not the whole picture. And I didn't have words for neoliberal or things like that. And I didn't, wasn't an analyzing things in high school in terms of, um, you know, the, the new deal or it just marketplace capitalism. You know, I was mm. still pretty much partisan and yeah, what, uh, Jimmy, uh, what Jimmy Carter, even though I think he's a decent human being, ultimately, mm -hmm. I mean, he was really, it didn't begin with Clinton. I mean, as uh, somebody reminded me not so long ago, it was Carter that started deregulating, that signed the laws deregulating the savings and loans in 1980. Sure. He signed yeah. that. Yeah. And then a few years later, you know, disaster. And um, so he was very much on board with this. And you get into these rarefied circles, even even back then, if you're president or in the Congress, and you just get out of touch with regular people. And there was a malaise. I mean, yeah, uh, I won a I won a Regents Alumni Scholarship to um, to the University of Michigan. If I had won it ten years before, it would have been a free ride. But then they mm. started means testing it, mm. and at the time, even though. My parents, you know, my father was head of the Zone law firm, but, uh, you know, we were in hock up to our eyeballs and mm. it was hard scrambling mm. money to to meet the, you know, I got like $250 stipend for books or something. And so a lot of the middle class was being, was feeling frozen out. Mm. And then there was all this, uh, you know, this awakened consciousness about racial discrimination. And yes, you know, a beginning of, of sexual harassment and you know mm -hmm. sex discrimination, 
Oh, I was yeah. on board that when I was five. But the thing is, is that it just, he just misread, misread the country and Reagan read it. Yeah. And you know, and so did Biden because there is a whole pile of things that Biden, there are statements out of the administration, you know, since the inauguration that it seems to just put the left, particularly progressives to sleep and nothing has happened on them. Like a moratorium on federal on drilling on federal land. Mm. First thing that, you know, a few days, the first week, uh, we're up to over 500 new leases being granted. Yeah. And the, the pipeline, yes, the Keystone was canceled, but that had been held up in the courts uh, years before, but Dapple's sure. going through all kinds of things. And it's like, you know, you, you, just, you just name the topic. I mean, they promised that there would be OSHA regulations in place the first week. Yeah. Haven't been put into place. Sure. So it's like a bait and switch. People hear the words they long to hear about something, and that seems mm. to be enough for progressives. And yeah. It's no, it's, it's, it's troubling, yeah. To go to war with also the Democrats is a hard thing. You really want, I mean, we all thought that was Barack Obama. Like, okay, God, maybe, and I even thought that. I blame myself, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to quote, well, quote the great, great Herman Cain. But, you know, I thought, yeah. hey, maybe... Hey, maybe the system does self-correct. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure we could delve into it for another hour if we wanted to, but we should probably leave it there. Okay. Um, yeah, we need to we need to kind of wake up the synambulist that it, that the country has become but, during these kind know, of democratic administrations. I, think, I still think we can do that. And by the way, um, just to finish up your previous question, mm. I think that because there's there's going to be a crisis soon, even with progressive, even with progressives going along so far as they had, because the the Biden administration is just not delivering. I still have some hope that Bernie Sanders can surprise us, and I think he is being you know rather mm. forceful at the moment with the infrastructure bill. But if there was ever a chance for progressives to try again for the presidency, it's this time around, because none of the none of the other Democrats will challenge, you know, the the administrative, the incumbents. They I don't think any of them are going to excite the, the voters either. And of course, and none of them will excite the voters. Yeah. Nina Turner and Vice President Bernie Sanders. <laughs> yes, please. That might be that that might be a winning ticket. You know, yeah. so it's like, you know, that's why I'm I'm we're I'm seeding that idea with people right now. Because yeah, from your lips to the ears of God herself, I say. Um, Marianne, always a pleasure. Let's, uh, yeah. we'll hook it up again in a few weeks. So there'll be a much okay. shorter break between the two, but always, always a pleasure talking. People can check out, check you out on um, David Feldman's show regularly. You're doing regular right. spots there. Is there anything else you want to direct people towards? Uh, there's pretty soon that I, there are some candidates in the uh, in, in around the Kane County area of Illinois that mm -hmm. are emerging to challenge incumbents. One running against uh, one of the most, uh, uh, I wouldn't say corrupt, although he's sort of corrupt, but he's certainly one of the most conservative Democrats, Krishnamurti in Congress, mm. um, Junaid Ahmad. And um, so he's going to be running in the, well, the 8th. We still don't know what the boundaries are going to be, but people mm. are running anyway. We have a bit of a break though, because the uh, next year in Illinois, the uh, primaries aren't until June. Mm. So we've got some extra time. 
Mm. So there isn't that this big gap when the primaries are early March, there's just this big gap between primary and November. But uh, right. So there are time for us to, you know, everybody dig out of COVID and, you know, just start, you know, coming, becoming engaged in the world. And that's what we're doing. There's a big march also. Everybody pick, there are cities all over the country, march for Medicare for all. Mm. A lot of the lefty punditry is telling us, ah, don't do that. And the, the uh, squad isn't being encouraging, but we've got to like push them. Who cares about pushing Biden left? Who's going to push the squad left? Mm, <laughs> squad. So anyway. We've got to push them all. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Marianne, always a pleasure talking. I'm glad uh, you're doing well. I'm glad you got some time in the cabin. Enjoy the, uh, the upstairs room that you're learning to appreciate again. <laughs> yeah. And um there's a balcony right out there. Nobody, oh. nobody even sees it. I'm, I'm so jealous. I'm like invisible up there. <laughs>
um, companies like Blue Origin. And the other one is like Virgin Galactic, which I don't know if you saw, they launched today. It's just like, it's just space tourism. And um, that sounds really cool until you realize that literally no one's gonna be able to take advantage of that unless you're like some billionaire. Yeah, I mean, it's it's exactly like in Total Recall, like we can't really afford the real vacations of space. We're just gonna have to settle for like weird, um, like psychosexually charged, uh, like virtual reality fantasies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because Vir- Virgin Galactic has been, yeah, they finally are doing something after being around for like over 10 years at this point, right? That's famously Richard, 2004, Richard Branson's outfit. Like the, Richard Branson was very cutting edge in terms of like a megalomaniacal <laughs> billionaire, completely ill-suited to a pursuit, uh, you know, such as trying to f- throw human bodies into space on a, on a rocket. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, but like, what are they? Are they are they finally putting people up, or are they, have they announced their first uh, like dates to like launch people into space? Um, yeah, I mean, Virgin Galactic. I mean, that, that's a ridiculous name, but they 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 had their first like um, um, like launch today with um, like. Uh, no paid passengers, but it was the um, it was the CEO Richard Branson uh, and a few others. I think they're like head of astronaut like training or something. She was on it as well. And um, well, so it's like was Branson trying to like steal Bezos's thunder? Do you think he like rushed these plans forward? Because if I recall correctly, yeah, that announcement I mean, came out after the Bezos announcement. Yeah. So Bezos announced first, and then Branson came out like a few days later, and he was like, "Oh, let's." Um, let's do this like a week before Bezos launches. Like, do we basically have like a couple of like, like arrested development style, like adolescent men trying to like vie for like attention? I mean, it's, it's the ultimate kind of like, look at me type thing. I'm, I'm going into space on my own private rocket. Yeah, no, it's a little bit ridiculous. And um, so, I mean, I mean, they, they launched on this spacecraft called spaceship two and just so the, the listeners. um, Great name, great name. Yeah, it's super creative. Um, but just just so people can visualize it, it's like um, it looks like a little um, like airplane. Um, it actually looks kind of cool. And um, the idea is that this like larger um, plane with like two uh, fuselages sort of carries this smaller plane in between the the fuselages, um, like high up, and then it detaches from the uh, the larger airplane and then um, it propels itself upwards and uh, not into orbit, but um, just like tilt to, to the edge of space and then it just um, sort of falls down and lands. So yeah, like, like a low earth orbit, right? So you can feel some weightlessness, but it's not gonna be like the full kind of- Yeah, not, not orbit uh, necessarily, just um, zero G. Zero much. G, yeah. Yeah, and oh. 80 kilometers up and that, that's actually, um a little bit controversial the height like because a lot of people have argued that does not like count as space right yeah yeah yeah. Uh, totally i remember reading that too it's hilarious like it's it's such a like dick measuring contest man like (laughs) holy shit and like what a what an inefficient like the inefficiencies on like every level um yeah but speaking of inefficiencies i have to get a quick word in for our sponsors um this episode of night rule is sponsored by megalomania do you really want to dream big Megalomania is for you. Okay, so, but Bezos, Bezos is the real meal deal here. He's going up with his brother, and I, if I recall correctly, a yeah. woman who was part of a very famous um, program to 
train and recruit uh, female astronauts that none of them ever went into space. She's been trying to get into space for decades. She's like, a, uh, was a flight instructor and whatnot. Yeah, that's right. Um, that is. Um, so, I mean, if it blows up, I'll be sad for her, you know? Yeah, no. She's it, kind of a regular person, but Bezos and his brother, it's like, what, how long are they going to be? They're only going to be up for like a sh really short period of time, right? Yeah, no, it's only going to be a few minutes and um, they're going up 100 uh, kilometers, I believe, which is the, uh, the Carmen line, which that's uh, what the um, sorry, you broke out there a little, little bit there. Just repeat that. Repeat that last bit. You broke up. Yeah, they bit. they will go beyond the uh, the Carmen line, which is the like arbitrary 100 kilometer uh, right like, boundary. That um, well, you know, the Vulcans put that boundary at 120 kilometers. Yeah, it's totally arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It is. Yeah, well, by the way, the um, the um, lady's name was uh, Wally Funk. She, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, she's like a an old timer in um, space, and um, she has never actually um, gone on a mission before, which is actually kind of sad. It's a it's a really interesting story, and she's a really uh, cool woman. But uh, I don't know. So that, that that was just a really clever PR move, I think. Well, and and let me ask you this: like, do you do you think these launches are legitimate? kind of demonstrations of a of a viable business that will exist at some point or or is it really just like mostly just this ridiculously insane and wasteful pr stunt like speaking um, about spending like how many millions of dollars for like a few minutes of, of space time yeah i don't know it's it's kind of weird because like I, I would have never thought this would be feasible um but you know it might be it's just kind of a i don't know it's just kind of an ins insane um like industry if you think about it it's like i've never seen anything like this where you have a company that like solely exists to um like serve like billionaires um, well that's the thing like there must be i mean there's more and more billionaires than ever i guess i guess yeah. potentially there's a pretty long list of people willing to spend you know 250k yeah. for 10 minutes of, sort of, of joy if you really think about it yeah it's like 250k to like probably throw up in a bag somewhere <laughs> Yeah. So I don't know, like, this is not to criticize anyone that actually like works at Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic or anything like that. Because um, I'm sure they're good people. It's just like, the, the whole business model is sort of strange to me. Well, speaking of people that would that would criticize the individuals involved in this endeavor, but you know, most most specifically people at the top like Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Um, there was some serious uh, Bernie Sanders drama. Now, I know everyone on the left has given up on Bernie Sanders or whatever, for whatever reason. But, you know, yeah. I, st I still follow the guy. He's Bernie. Come on, give me a break. What uh, what, what went down between Sanders and uh, and and uh, Bezos? No, Bernie's great. Um, anyway, yeah. So with the um, like the Sanders, like Bezos drama, you could say. Um, so there, there was this amendment in the NASA authorization bill, which was part of the Endless Frontiers Act that later turned into the Innovation and Competition Act of 2021. So that's that's a mouthful. Yeah, that's um, a that's a nice Orwellian kind of term. Yeah. Oh, by the way, this this act, the uh, Innovation and Competition Act, uh, it's like one of the biggest bills I've ever seen. Like you can look it up online. It's like hundreds of pages long. Um, a lot of it's good, but there is this one amendment that would um, like 
in a roundabout way appropriate like an additional 100 or sorry 10 billion dollars to blue origin um and bezos or not not bezos my bad bernie introduced a amendment immediately after that would block this amendment um and uh basically like remove the additional 10 billion for blue origin uh and unfortunately this this did not go through um they voted for the act everything passed they didn't even vote on uh bernie's amendment so that was a little bit too that, that was that was a loss i guess um if you support um bernie's amendment which i i certainly do i don't think blue origins like deserving of an additional 10 billion dollars like a company you know owned or managed or part of the empire of like the the richest man on earth yeah, which mean, just has billions and billions to burn and it's probably made more money right now since we started talking than like the both the two of us are going to make the next three months combined um, second. yeah <laughs> yeah I, I mean I, I think the i don't know like that aside even it's just like I don't see any value that would come out of a contract like this, right? Like, I mean, at, at least you could say like SpaceX or ULA, which is the other, um, you know, large contractor, like at least like these companies are like sort of, um, uh, they're beholden to NASA in some ways and they, um, they have to provide um, value to, um, Sorry, say that again to provide value. Sorry, you cut out after you said value. Provide value to who? To NASA. Uh, NASA and um, U.S. the U.S. space program. Uh, Whereas Blue Origin, it's primarily a space tourism company. I don't think they've demonstrated that they can um, provide uh, any value beyond uh, that. So I don't know. It's just not. It's just not worth it. I mean, even if it were, let's 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 let's. But it's a pretty big grant, but let's grant that, sure. that there's an there's a viable economic model for space tourism. Yeah. What do you think of the other big issues that jump out? You know, as as a holder of the sacred rings of Beta Z, someone who has, you know, traveled <laughs> space, but you know, for a purpose. I think when you look at a, a lot of the great spacefaring stories in our time, our history, you know, uh like Han Solo made the Kessel run in 12 parsecs because he was doing something, he was smuggling to the spice mines or from the spice mines of Kessel, you know, like there's, there's a reason he wasn't doing it. He wasn't on vacation, you know, yeah. but it's not as though star Wars was just like one long vacation for a bunch of rich people. That's the first problem I see. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, um, I, I would agree. We should, uh, we should fund millennium Falcon and, um, you know, we should consider, uh, endeavors such as, uh, um, I'm trying to think here. You know, to go be to go where no one no one has gone before. But like for like, it just seems to me like even if it is, a, you know, if you can charge say a bunch of billionaires a million dollars a head to go into space, I mean, what what's the fucking like green? What what's the greenhouse gas emissions on that shit? What's the what does that even say that like like could you think of a more cartoonishly monstrous expression of like wealth inequality? Than it's, billionaires it's paying paying millions of dollars to go into space and and must building spaceships expressly for that purpose. I, I will say the um, the climate change angle is not 
that much of an issue like i'm it's just sort of like wasted right but um right because i get i mean they're so the flights are infrequent it's not like they're going up like every yeah. day yeah yeah not at all but it's it's just like it, it's just wasteful and um i would much rather have you know these re these resources put into like really anything else <laughs> and if you're gonna put it towards like space in some way just like um like you could have like some really cool like scientific missions that could um provide like a ton of value and yeah, i don't know like that that's that's what i think is interesting about space and that's what i think gets a lot of people into this like i i sort of reject the notion that like they're they're so inspiring that it doesn't matter that only a few billionaires will um actually enjoy the direct benefits it's just like i think that's such a lazy argument you could you can make that for really any other mission also mm. right another big story that's been um been in the news lately is um this Wolf Amendment question, you know, Bill oh, yeah. Nelson wanted to make it permanent, you know, it prohibits uh, cooperation between the, the Chinese and the American space agencies. Right. Can you yeah. can you dig into this a little bit more for, for our Night Rule listeners? Yeah, so um, the Wolf Amendment was passed by, uh, I, I think his name was Frank Wolf. He was a, um, a Republican representative in the House. Another great name. Gotta love Wolf. Yeah, he's... It's a fantastic dude, as, as we'll soon see. Um, yeah, and anyway, he passed this amendment that um, would ban cooperation between NASA and the CNSA, which is the, uh, the Chinese space program. And um, it's just such a, it, it threw a wrench into a lot of um, plans, I'm sure. And uh, it's, not, it's not like a, um, like a total ban. Because you, you can still have some cooperation, but like through roundabout means, and you need to get Congress approval for like anything that. Um, and this and this serves what like appreciable benefit other than to just chill collaboration. Yeah, it's just um, I, I don't like you. You can't really make a an argument for it. It's just, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's just like oh, China's. It's bad. just like we want to we want to codify a little more xenophobia into our scientific. Uh, yeah institutions okay yeah pretty sure. much um i mean it, it's led to like protests as well like in 2013 or no, no that it passed in 2013 but um there was some conference a few years back um and there was like a um a protest by american scientists because the the chinese scientists were, weren't allowed in the in the conference and this was a like an internet it was supposed to be an international um like scientific gathering related to space so um, you know, no one likes this unless you're um, like no one who's actually engaged in um, this field likes this um, amendment. It's totally useless. Um, and so the the new NASA administrator, Bill Nelson, um, appointed by Biden, um, I think in some interview recently, he said like that um, he would want to make this amendment permanent, which is like like, all right, that's kind of shitty, actually. Um, it doesn't help anything. And this, this is supposed to be like... Um, I mean, this is this is a context where, you know, China is like not only like a space power, but a, but a scientific superpower, you know, conducting like a huge amount of the original research that's being done like worldwide right now. Yeah, I mean, they, they're super active in um, space exploration at this point. And it's like, like, I'm not a fan of the Chinese government, but 
they're they're a huge like global global player and uh um like they, they have over a billion people like you you've got to work with them at some point right um yeah but it, yeah it's just ridiculous um like I, I think there should be a like a concerted push to remove this amendment i don't think it would be that difficult um to do so you just have to write it out that's it um i'm not sure if that would ever happen like what's what what is this deal with the um the Chang, how does this affect the Chang'e 4 collaboration between the US and China as an example? Well, that, that's an interesting example because um, Chang'e 4 was actually a, um, a mission that US and um, China worked on together. This was their, um, the recent Chinese moon lander mission. And uh, NASA wanted to uh, help out in some way. And they, they actually got, um, but be, because of the Wolf Act, they were like prohibited from doing so. So they had to um, get approval from Congress, which they, they did. And, uh, but it, it's just like- Well, like what a, the fuck is Congress gonna say? Like as if Congress is, is in a position to like know- Yeah, I mean- they, To answer that question. They, they're, they're, either, they're either just gonna say yes or like randomly and arbitrarily say no. It's just like- Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But the Chang Four, Chang'e Four is uh, was a satellite. Uh, Chang'e Four um, was a. Uh, it's in my notes right here. That was a um, a lander that they uh, right. that they launched onto the uh, moon. It's just in 2019. Um, and it, it was it was a pretty important mission because they um, we haven't really um, landed much on the moon for quite a while, and uh, I, I believe this was the first Chinese mission to ever land on the moon. Mm. Um, don't quote me on that, but uh, I believe that's the case. And, and they they were just collecting data and um, like taking measurements and such, which is valuable to everybody. So. Totally. Um, you need collaboration in cases like this. Now, China's already banned from the International Space Station, but they, they've, uh, I believe, started to launch the first modules for their own uh, permanent space station, yeah. Tiangong, right? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, three weeks ago, uh, they launched the first astronauts as well to this uh, space station. Um, the last crewed mission that uh, China has done before this point was back in 2016. So it's a, it's a pretty important uh, milestone either way, aside from the whole space station aspect. But um, yeah, they're, they're banned from the ISS. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've seen conflicting arguments on that point, whether that's a, a good thing or not. I, I don't think that's, um, I don't think it's good personally, but um, they're, they're starting to make their own space station. They've launched a couple modules already at this point. And they, they actually have astronauts on it right now, which I don't think a lot of people know. And I think it's pretty I did not know that, yeah. Yeah. So currently we have um, two separate um, stations in orbit. It's super interesting. What do you think the chances are 
that like once the Chinese space station gets going a little bit more and maybe, you know, once we see a little bit more traffic up there in general, like all the cosmonauts and astronauts are going to be going to the Chinese space station to get, you know, like a nice, a nice dish of, you know, maybe a nice broad noodle, you know, maybe if you like a buckwheat noodle, whatever you like, I'm sure, I'm sure it's going to be like the hub ultimately. If, you know? if, if we're going there, I want a, um, a Japanese space station. Just so I can that would also be good too. Like I kind of imagine space stations based on my deep and passionate knowledge of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of view space stations as like the malls of space. You know, you go up there, mm-hmm. you get some kind of random alien ice cream, you walk around, maybe a meter shower comes and destroys you all, you know, but ultimately it's pretty chill. I think that's the vision of the future we can all get behind. That's right. I agree. <laughs> actually, on a side note, like as a tangent, it's actually surprisingly hard to travel from one space station to another it's like it's like actually really really tough i saw sanbo do it just like a couple of years ago it was a brilliant documentary do you see that gravity oh yeah gravity yeah i liked it it wasn't over long you know a lot of documentaries are like two and a half three hours um i also wanted to ask you so do do you think if i if i made a a if i if i smuggled some biomimetic gel and made a perfect clone of you and implanted your own memories inside of it, but then also gave it a few weeks to run around on its own to develop its own kind of personality. Do you think it would have the same view of space tourism or would it maybe be more supportive of it? Um, compared to me? Yeah. I don't know. You'd have to ask the, um, you'd have to ask the robot, I guess. I actually have no idea. No, it's a clone. Next week, okay, everyone, clone. next week, we're going to have the clone on to find out what his views are. Yeah, ask him. <laughs> or, you know, maybe he'll have a different gender identity. Maybe it'll be a Zimzer. Yeah. Um, all right, dude. Well, He's thank you for the, uh, for the check-in. Are there any other stories you want to direct people towards on the science and clean technology and space front? Not Should we be worried about any kind of uh, celestial activities? Not quite. I, I would just recommend look up look up the Wolf Amendment and just read a couple articles about it. It's um, quite damaging. And I, I don't know if there's any action that um, people can take individually on that front, but I think it's probably good to be aware. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I think any anytime you're faced with like a kind of anti-intellectual um, law like that or like even there's, you know, we kind of have an anti-intellectual, anti-science kind of movement in a lot of ways um, across the board. So yeah, it's definitely good to be aware because that, you know, and, and aware of the ways in which it can specifically hurt things like, you know, joint efforts to like fucking study shit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, dude. Well, um, I only got enough power to keep the shields up for another 30 seconds and then I got to get back into the transporter buffer. Um, I've been hiding out in there and uh, visiting some of my non-corporeal uh, friends. Um, it's kind of nice to get out of the linear space-time continuum once in a while, if you know what I mean. So um, great talking and we'll, uh, we'll catch up real soon and uh, hope you survive the rest of the, the heated summer down there. Yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we got space for you on the space station, don't worry. That's true.